Hello and welcome to Bedside Matters. You know what I'm going to say. This is the podcast that addresses the medical issues that impact all of us every single day. And we're hopefully going to give you answers you're looking for so you can be more informed and healthier. And I'm joined by Dr. David Kipper and Anna Vicino, and I'm Peter Tilden. And here we go. We're off and running, guys. How are you? Great. How are you? You, you know what? You notice nobody ever asked that. Well, I got we a litany literally of stuff. ask I'm you actually- every week. By the way, I'm I'm also great. How are you, Anna? Oh, hey, Dr. <laughs> Kipper. I'm sorry. I didn't see you okay. there. Okay. All right. All right. I get your point. So on today's show. We're discussing endometriosis and some misunderstood uh, misconceptions, et cetera, about endometriosis, how to protect yourself, and also edema, leg swelling, aging, what to know, what to do. My grandfather, when he took off his socks, you could it looked like he was still wearing socks for two days. It it never went down. That can't be good. No, that can't be good. No, he never he never put his legs down. I never, but it was bad. It was bad. I always thought he had socks on with that mark. I thought that was a good thing. Um, and this just happened. Boy, there's so many things that we have a shortage of right now. Shortage of asthma medication. And then we've got our caller today in the Hey, What About Me segment that wants to know about sleep, a specific question about sleep. So we'll get to all of those, but let's start. Anna. So the first thing we want to discuss today is endometriosis, tends to be in the news from time to time. I've never really understood exactly what it is, but I know it's hard to treat. Why is that? Why is endometriosis such a mystery? What is it? So it's common. That's what it is. 10% of women have endometriosis. And what it actually is, the lining of the endometrium, the lining of the uterus, that endometrium can actually get outside of the uterus and travel into other organs and tissues. And some of that lining tissue can end up on the ovaries, on the fallopian tubes. It can end up uh, in the intestines. And actually, I personally had a case where endometrial tissue landed in the lung. And it's, again, it's not that uncommon. You know, that was a really interesting case, but it's not that uncommon. The problem with endometriosis and why it's hard to treat is that it's underdiagnosed. And here's the reason for this. So this endometrial tissue... When someone is having their menstrual period or ovulating, these are the times of the month when the estrogen and progesterone levels are at different, different stages, different levels. And that's when this endometrial tissue gets stimulated. And that's when women during their, their menstrual periods get pain. During your ovulation, you can get pain. So these tissues that end up elsewhere can create pain syndromes in other parts of the body. And so it's confusing because also when someone is on their menstrual period or ovulating and they complain to the doctor that they're having these pains, the doctor assumes it's because you're on your menstrual period or you're ovulating without thinking that this might be something going on outside of the uterus. So that's one problem. So diagnosing this, first of all, you have to think about it. And then if you think about it, you have to go find it diagnostically. So this is where the problem comes in. Then you ask, why is it, therefore, why is it hard to treat? First of all, you have to make that diagnosis. As we just said, it's, it's hard to do that. There are very few doctors that really want to treat endometriosis because when these endometrial implants land elsewhere, the gynecologists are not so excited about going after these things on different organs that they're not familiar with. The surgeons are generally right. not so excited about this. And so you have, a, you have a 
mismatch between the the illness and the treatment for this. And there's a question about the treatment. What's the best treatment? Most people will be given birth control pills. And the reason for that is that you can normalize or stabilize, if you will, the estrogen levels in the system. And by doing that, you're not getting that big flux that creates the pain. So one treatment is to put women on hormones. Another treatment is to go in and ablate these with like a cautery, burn them out. And another treatment is to excise them surgically. Turns out that the excision is the better way to treat this. Here's an interesting thing about endometriosis. (laughs) Men can get endometriosis. There have been 20, I think 20 reported cases of endometriosis and You want to venture a guess as to how this might happen? In order for me to figure out how men would have gotten it, I don't even think I understand how the lining of the uterus can get outside of the uterus. How does that happen? Well, if you think about it, when you have your menses, right, when you have your period, you're losing endometrial tissue. You're bleeding, but there's endometrial tissue that's being lost. I guess I just thought it all came out of the cervix and down that way. It does, but it goes into the bloodstream also, and the bloodstream can carry it to other organs. So wait, what? endometriosis in men through sex? It's a sexually transmitted disease. Delivery? Good. I don't know. How, how are men all, getting it? All very good guesses. All wrong, but they're good Hold guesses. Hold on. Hold on. Special, Hold on. So, special delivery. I can't imagine. Think about the embryo developing. Some of that endometrial tissue gets lost in the prostate. And so there's, there are remnants of endometrial tissue in wow. the prostate. From your mom. It's actually not from your mom. It's the embryo that's trying to separate into male and female. Oh, it's your own embryo. Right. Yes, your of own yourself. embryo. So that's Jeez, how it that's happens. amazing. So wow. That, how does that, by the way, David, if they find it hard to diagnose in women, it's impossible <laughs> to diagnose in a guy. No one is looking at the guy and go, I know what this is. This is endometriosis, of course. Right. How do they even diagnose it in those 20 guys, 20 guys that are buckled over going, I'm having pain? Yeah. How would they even think I got to the look menstrual there? cramps? Yeah, that's insane. They found this in the prostate tissue. Wow. They've looked at Jeez. the prostate, they see something's wrong in the prostate, and that's what's wrong. And they might just find it as an incidental finding. Someone might be experiencing pain and issues, clinical issues from this. But until they have their prostates evaluated for prostate cancer or other issues, Amazing. that's when they find it. And David, in diagnosing this, because you've heard for years women complaining about that they're not taking me seriously, they're saying it's psychological, that type of thing. Are there certain doctors that are specialized in, in diagnosing this? Or is every doctor on board now where they've, they've gotten the memo? that this is a real thing, it's not psychological, and here are the tests to do, and you need a laparoscopy, whatever that is. Does everybody know that now? Is that is that widespread? No, that's part of the problem. It's a very hard thing to think of. Uh, the case that I had, which I thought was fascinating, was a woman, young woman, tall and thin. Those are the women that are more likely to get uh, what we call pneumothorax, where the, the top of the lung tissue just breaks, bursts, and there's an air leak into the chest. That's a pneumothorax. And it's more common in young, thin women. So I had this woman that came in with that physical profile, and she had been uh, somewhere, I think she was in Santa Barbara. She was somewhere outside of Los Angeles, and she had a pneumothorax. She went to the emergency room, 
and they fix the pneumothorax. Most of these just resolve if they're small, but if they're big, you have to put a chest tube in. This is what happened to her. It was a mess. Oh my gosh, poor thing. Then she came back about, this was maybe six months later. So she tells me the story and I'm taking a look at her lung thinking, what could be causing this? Knowing that her habitus, her clinical composition is consistent with the pneumothorax. Then she comes back about six months later and she tells me that she had another pneumothorax. It was like the night before. And she knew the symptoms. It's this acute chest pain, shortness of breath. And I asked her if anything else was going on. And she said, well, no, not really. I'm on my, started my period. And I thought, hmm, I wonder if this pneumothorax was a result of her having endometriosis that could have gone to her lung. And in fact, that's what happened. Wow. So she goes through the same thing again, where she has to have a chest tube and she's sick. Then um, I sent her for some imaging studies and sure enough, the endometrial tissue shows up on the lung. And I sent her to Stanford. There's this one specialized group of surgeons in Stanford that was good at taking these out. And then they restored the top of that lung. There are different ways to do that. And that was her presentation. So now I have more questions because like a friend of mine who was in her early 30s, she wound up having a full hysterectomy, not full, but a partial, I guess, if they just take the uterus but leave the ovaries, it's a partial hysterectomy? Or they leave the cervix and just take the uterus. Yeah. So and she was in her early 30s and they wound up doing that for her endometriosis. So this makes me wonder how much more prevalent it is. And how, when you said you had her go in for additional imaging, what sort of imaging do you recommend for people to ask for? Those things are seen either on a CT or MRI. The MRIs are actually better for this. But you can see these on these two kinds of scans. So David, before we move on from endometriosis, if somebody suspects they have endometriosis, should they find a doctor that treats, you do ask to find a doctor whose practice is common with, familiar with endometriosis and, and rather than guess that this, doc, this guy or your family physician knows, knows how to diagnose it? The gynecologists are right on this, and the general practitioners hopefully will think of this, generally can think of this, especially when they're having their symptoms on their menstrual period or when they're ovulating. But again, that gets confusing because there are pain, cramping when you have your menstrual period and and your ovulation. So you have to, first of all, think about it. So if if someone is curious enough or the symptoms are bad enough, or sometimes these pains are in different areas, they're not just located right, in right, the pelvis, right. then you start doing the imaging studies and you can find it. All right. So interesting, moving on to the other E that we talked about, edema. Yes. As you get older with the leg swelling thing. Interesting. I read something that said if you have one leg swollen and the other not swollen, that can be worse than if oh, both, yeah, I read both that. legs are swollen. What does that swollen. mean? Why is there more concern if one leg is swollen than the other? So to answer that question, let me back up a little bit and explain why the legs get swollen, and then we can talk, then I can answer that question. So we have arteries and veins. The arteries carry the oxygen to all the tissues, and at the end of this arterial tree, it turns into a vein. The vein is blood that has no oxygen in it, so that blood has to get up to the lung. So to do that, how does that happen? How do you propel the 
unoxygenated blood up to the lung. When you walk, you're constricting your muscles in the lower extremities. And that constriction of the muscles constricts these veins and pushes the blood up north. So why does this tend to happen more in older people? And here's the answer to that. And I'm going to get to your question, Peter, I promise. In order to get the blood all the way up, the veins have these one-way valves. And these valves, as we get older, start to wear out. And their function is to, when, they're, when the vein is constricted, these valves help push the blood up to the lung. These valves, like all other tissues in the body as we age, they wear out. So some of these valves in the veins are no longer functioning. And so the, all the blood doesn't make it to the lung, and some of that pools in the lower extremities, the feet, the ankles, and that's where the swelling comes from. So why would this happen in one leg as opposed to both legs? Because almost all of these are in both legs, because this, this is a physiologic process. By the way, it's genetic. It's worse with people that are obese, much more common in women. But here's an answer to that question, and it may not be the only answer, but in people that get a blood clot, that let's say you have this problem with your veins. It's called venous insufficiency. And let's say you have this problem. It's in both legs, but it's only now showing up in one leg. And the answer to that, from my perspective, is that you might have a blood clot in that leg. And so the blood clots, these are deep vein thromboses, they're called DVTs, and the blood can actually clot in that vein. And because of that, the circulation is really not able to get up to the lung because now you have an area of the lung in that tube that's clotted off and you can't get the blood past the clot, that extremity will swell. So in someone that has minor disease, you may not see any swelling, but if somebody has minor disease and they get a blood clot in that leg, that leg is going to swell. So if the one leg is bloated and the other isn't, it's, it's, it's worrisome. It is worrisome. It can also happen, by the way, you have lymphatics that travel along with the blood vessels. And the lymphatics, which carry the lymph tissue, which is all that immune good stuff, if you have a blockage of your lymphatic system, and this can happen if you've had surgery in the groin, this can happen uh, if there are any kind of damaging big lymph nodes, for instance, it can happen on one side from a cancer or from some other serious infection, the lymphatics themselves can't go all the way to the top. So that leg can swell. But the more common answer to that question, Peter, would be a blood clot. Wow. So in our This Just Happened segment, uh, there's a shortage of asthma inhalers. I mean, Peter was talking about at the beginning of the show, we have a shortage in so many medications. Get another one. Is it just albuterol? Is it other kind of inhalers, what's going on with this shortage and how do people get it? Because this is, it's kind of urgent. When you need your inhaler, you need your inhaler. And the problem with this is that millions of people have respiratory illnesses like COPD and asthma. And those people need the inhaler in in order to open up these airways to breathe, to get the oxygen in. So it is a big problem. And the, the one product that is in short supply is albuterol. And albuterol comes in two forms. It comes in a powder that you can put into an inhaler that you put into your mouth, 
or it can come in a liquid form that you put into something called a nebulizer, which aerosols this. And it's much easier in a, in a nebulizer. So little kids or people that just can't do the inhalers, they use the nebulizers. And in hospital settings where people are really sick, that's where they use the nebulizers because they can't really coordinate the right. inhalers as well. The, so the, the liquid the form... Thing and then it inhale and... Right. Yep. It takes a little bit of work. So the liquid form of the albuterol, which we use in these nebulizers, is more common in people that are more sick and end up in the hospital. And because of COVID, this is one reason, but because of COVID, we went through a lot of this supply of the albuterol because uh. people were, were using this. And so that that's where this problem originated. And the companies that were making albuterol, they all sort of jumped ship leaving only one company, one pharmaceutical company, I think they're called the Nephron Pharmaceuticals, uh, they continue to manufacture this liquid form. So th this is a real problem. And the thing that makes this problem worse now is that because of the climate problems that we're having, we're seeing these extended periods of allergies. And these pollens now are way more common and they're lasting longer. So the, thing, the very thing that promotes these asthmatic attacks and emphysema, COPD attacks, uh, are now more common than they ever used to be. Great, great. And, and we have this shortage. So when did, do we know when this is going to be resolved? This started last fall, and they don't predict an end in sight very soon. So this remains a problem. Here's how the albuterol works. It's interesting. We have in the lungs these things called beta receptors, and the beta system allows the lungs, the smooth muscle in the lungs around these airways to relax and open up. During asthma and COPD exacerbations, what happens is that these the smooth muscle in these areas constricts. So albuterol stimulates the beta response in the lung to relax these muscles, these smooth muscles, so that the airways can open up. So that's how they actually work. Because there are so many people that are suffering from asthma and COPD, the question then becomes, what do we do about this shortage of these inhalers and the albuterol? One of the things that you can do is talk to your doctor about how to be able to prevent some of these lung problems, meaning there are vaccines that you can get for COVID and flu and pneumonia vaccines, and now an RSV vaccine that's going to be available this year. Uh, you can put air filters in your home and in your office. Uh, you can try to avoid those allergens that you know are going to get you. Wash your dogs and your pets periodically to uh, keep those allergens uh, from being in the house. So there are things that you can do proactively. Okay, you know what? It's time for, hey, what about me? And Dr. Kipper, we have a question for you from David. David, what's your question? I go to bed pretty late at night and generally get about five hours of sleep. And I was sort of wondering if you could set the, the record straight on, on how much sleep we should be getting, right? Is it the eight hours thing that we've all heard? or Because uh, I feel pretty good with, with five. But what are the consequences, seen and unseen, of not getting enough of a good night's sleep? So anyway, thanks, Dr. Kipper. Love the show. We've known for a long time that the 
best number for hours of sleep is around seven to eight. We also know that less sleep is not good for us. And there was a Swedish study that actually came out recently that showed people that get five hours or less of sleep have a greatly increased chance of getting atherosclerosis and coronary artery disease and stroke. And that association now seems, that seems to be a real association. And there's another interesting part of that study that showed that people that took a nap, first of all, these people that are getting five hours of sleep are tired the next day. People that are habitual nappers and, and take a nap for an, an hour, these people have an even greater association of these risk factors. Nappers? Why is that? Because they're throwing off their rhythm, the circadian rhythm type thing? Well, there, there's a number of reasons that, that happen with sleep deprivation. First of all, it, it creates, from a clinical standpoint, if you're not sleeping well, you're irritable, your memory issues are different, your decision-making is different, you're more prone to accidents. Uh, it, it impairs other organ functions because all of the organs in our body have a circadian rhythm, and they also have to be, they, have, they need some downtime. Uh, in the brain, what's interesting, and we've talked about this before, there's a neuroprotective effect of sleep. If you're not getting enough sleep, sleep is when all these neurotoxins are eliminated through the ventricles in the brain. If you're not getting enough sleep, these neurotoxins accumulate in the brain and they're inflammatory and they create problems in the nerve cells, the glial cells. And this is a huge association with dementia because now you're wiping out these, these cells that are necessary. And Harvard did an interesting study. They looked at, I think it was like 3,000 people that were over age 65. And they measured these people's sleeping hours. And those that slept five hours or less were twice as likely to develop dementia. And the reason is probably for what we just said. It's probably that these neurotoxins develop. That's yes. frightening. And there are a couple things that we should all be aware of as far as getting better sleep. And one is to have a, a sleep plan, to set a structure for your sleep so that you have a regular sleep hygiene. You get into bed, you turn off all the electronics, you put your book away, and you just go to, you just lay there until you can go to sleep because everything else is stimulating and keeps you awake. I go back to brain chemistry for a minute. There are reasons that our impaired brain chemistry creates these sleep disturbances. We've talked about these different neurotransmitters, people that are shy in the calming neurotransmitters, the serotonin transmitters. They don't sleep well because they get into bed and they're worrying about everything that happened that day and what's going to happen two days from now. And so they're not getting enough sleep for that reason. Well, we're all nodding. Everybody here is right, nodding. Everyone's waving. Because you can, waving and saying, that's me. We get it. Well, here's me, which is the other group that has that are shy in their stimulating neurotransmitters. Those are the dopamine neurotransmitters. They want stimulation. They're not going to bed. They want to stay up. They don't. They they have FOMO, the fear of missing out. You've heard of this. They, yes. they don't. They don't want to miss anything. So they're staying. So their their sleep disturbance. Everybody is prone to a sleep disorder. So that's why you need Terrific. to set a routine. You need to set a sleep time. Uh, if you exercise in the morning, you're going to produce these endorphins that are going to help you. You don't want to eat stimulating foods, uh, high caloric. 
uh, sugary foods before you go to bed. You want to leave three or four hours between your last meal and when you get into bed so that you're not laying in bed trying to digest a cheeseburger. I love eating. I love nothing better than eating in bed. This, this is the one joy of my life. When my wife is out of the house, I'm not allowed to eat. When, when she leaves, I cheat. I'm right in bed with whatever there. And I've adjusted my schedule so I can get, I get up really early, like 4.30 or 5, because I like two or three hours of uninterrupted worrying time where nobody's bothering. <laughs> the phone's not That's ringing. That's why we it's sleep just, in separate bedrooms now so I can worry there you go. in my room and he can worry in his room. I'm there just you go. We don't do there you that. go. But worrying with walls in we between. We worry in the same room. But, but oh, that's sweet. That's sweet. It is really sweet. That's how we've kept our love alive. People imaginary kicking, screaming, night sweats. That must be adorable. <laughs> there's there's a lot of anxiety in the middle of the night in our. Do you in wake our... up and, and find out that during your sleep you're worried about the exact same thing? That's so cute. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> I love you so much. I worried about the same thing that the house was going to burn down. That's wonderful. Do you guys take naps? No, I. Good. You know what I used to, but when I changed the way I ate. I now do, but, and I was going to say too, when I do more strength training, I am tired enough to sleep through the night. Like I literally have to run my physical body ragged so that I will sleep through the night. And then I do. And then I always get a good score on my aura ring. And so I was like, oh yeah, that's right. Exercise. We're supposed to be you doing the that. Tests. I get a test for this. I love the aura ring. I, I can't nap because it reminds me of my grandfather snoring on the sofa. It's <laughs> disgusting. I want to do it, but I can't do it. I just can't do it in the middle of the day. You feel like a dirt, like you're, it just doesn't feel right. You know how you feel tired and you're like, I'm going to go lay down. And then the moment your head hits a pillow, you're like, I can't do this. This is ridiculous. I can't do this. Can't do it. Peter, I'm so glad that your grandfather wasn't my patient. With the fat legs and the not sleeping. And oh, that's he so sounds funny. Like, he sounds like He's, he might have been a mess. Used to hunt, instead of whistle, my father whistled, which was annoying, but my grandfather, you, you know what he used to do? Bum, 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 bum. He used to do some kind that of was tuba He used to walk around with this like tuba oh. It was like a backup sound for a Prius. It was really, you always knew where he was. Going, bum, bum, bum. I think he did that for my grandmother, so she knew he was coming. Bum, 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 bum. It was so, and I thought, is this genetic? Am I going to have this? All right, to recap, Endometriosis is, uh, is 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 a real thing. Men and, and it's not just for women anymore. Mm-hmm. Twenty guys have gotten. Why do you guys have to take the one thing that we have? Yeah, stop. Well, you know what? Get out of here. Uh, edema. If it's one leg that's swollen and looks like you're still wearing a sock for an hour and a half after, and not the other, not a good thing. The asthma oh, medication, albuterol, is a sh- in shortage. And get your sleep. Napping is not good. And try and get a routine down. Man, we keep hearing that and. I got to tell you something, getting that aura ring, I learned how messed up my sleep was because I was just kind of in denial about it. And it made me develop what you're talking about, sleep hygiene or sleep routine. What does the aura ring do? Well, it tracks like resting heart rate, heart rate variability, the hours that you sleep, whether you're in deep sleep, REM, light sleep. You know, I just have a mood ring from the sixties that tells me if I'm happy <laughs> it does or the sad. Same it, thing. it does the same thing, but I liked it because I found out my sleep was bad. And then I wound up getting the, the whole change. I've got this expensive aura ring, but then the whole thing that made a difference was getting a $25 sleep mask. And that made me sleep through the night, probably 50% more than I was. Is that when you got a separate bedroom? When no. you got the mask? The first night we were married and back from our honeymoon and I was four months pregnant, he said to me in earnest, he turned and looked at me, he goes, we should have separate bedrooms. And I was like, we literally just got married. (laughs) Can we just try this co-sleeping thing? (laughs) 
And um, and we still sleep in the same bed 24 years later. <laughs> and if you're sick and tired of being sick and tired, follow us at bedsidematters.org. I'm going to take a nap. See ya. The information on Bedside Matters should not be understood or construed as medical or health advice. The information on Bedside Matters is not a substitute for medical or health advice from a professional who is aware of the facts and circumstances of your individual situation. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with your friends. We'll see you next time.